Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you that you are on the throne, that you are God and God alone. And that one day all the nations will be gathered. You will judge them accordingly in justice and righteousness and truth. And you will judge each and every one of us. Your children for the works that we've done here to glorify you. And those who are not your children to perdition. And that God is all to your glory. And I ask this morning that you would grip our hearts in such a way that we would get a deeper glimpse into what it means that you are the Most High God. That you are absolutely sovereign. And that you are the one who guides the affairs of men and women in history. And we ask this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. There's much unrest today in our world. Uh, In the states alone, there's racial, there's social, there's political, and even religious or worldview divides. And they cause many of us to lose sleep at night. It brings personal anguish to many. And we have this sense of alienation. We are alienated from ourselves. We are alienated from each other. We're alienated from nature. We're alienated from God. And it reminds us that the account in Genesis of the fall is still ever-present. In the Middle East, there's the rise of radical Islam, which has caused much unrest in Europe, as you've heard of the bombings in Paris. In fact, there is, uh, according to one British outlet, news outlet, ISIS jihadis determined to carry out attacks in European cities are entering the continent hidden among migrants, a German police chief says. And according to the Austria press agency, Mr. Massin, this office was aware of almost 8,000 Islamic radicals in Germany. In the U.S. alone, we have a, many reports, but one is that ISIS is teaching lone wolves how to equip themselves with a how-to manual. Now this manual, among other things, teaches them how to devise a cover story, maintain safe houses, maintain weapons, security, how to perform surveillance, and instructs them how to recruit people, which are mostly people from their families and people they've known for a long time. We got an upcoming election. Aware of that, right? Seen the debates. Uh, And there's a lot of unrest there too. The right says that the left is wrong. Republicans deplore Democrats. The left and Dems return the favor. And as the Tears for Fears song goes, everybody wants to rule the world. There's a lot of unrest. There's nothing new under the sun, however. And today, uh, in Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see that really nothing has changed. And I want to just encapsulate verses one through th- uh, chapters 1 through 3 of Daniel, just to bring you up to speed. But just to recapture uh, chapters 1 through 3, 
Um, there is now in chapter 1, we have God sovereignly displacing His people. Babylon known uh, the then known world power. So Israel was a conquered people. In chapter 2, we see Daniel's God alone is the God who reveals secrets. He is the God who reveals mysteries. So there's no God like Daniel's God. In chapter 3, three friends being rescued from the fiery furnace. So again, there's no God like Daniel's God. And now in chapter 4, we're going to see something spectacular. We're going to see that there is no sovereign but Daniel's God. And that is what Nebuchadnezzar is going to finally come to realize. Here the king is humbled in order to be converted. After understanding that only the creator is sovereign, never the creature. The issue of the sovereignty of God brings a lot of conflict to a lot of Christians. Christians get angry and nasty and divide over it. I beg you to not get nasty or divide over this. The Bible is full of this teaching. And in this chapter, it is in your face, in living color. So please, if you can... Ask God, if you're having a hard time with this, ask God to give you ears to hear what God wants to say and is revealing through this chapter in Daniel. But what we're going to see in this chapter is that Nebuchadnezzar opens up with praise to God Most High. Then he is going to recall his dream and get Daniel to interpret it. Third, his dream becomes his nightmare. But fourth, he concludes the chapter with praise to God Most High. And I've titled this sermon, God is Sovereign Over the Earth Kings, demonstrated by Nebuchadnezzar's humiliation and... Bible's open. Nebuchadnezzar opens with praise to God Most High, verses 1 through 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language that live in all the earth, may your peace abound. It has seemed good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. The setting here is really after uh, chapter 3 where the king sees God supernaturally supernaturally delivering the three Hebrew children from the fiery furnace. Okay? So, well, that is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, how long after is not clear when he is saying this? What is clear is that this former king is about to unfold the final events which led to his conversion. But I believe this guy got converted. Now, what is his declaration? I mean, everyone has a song to sing. Songs reveal human stories in space-time history, whether they're real or imagined, and they unfold our deepest, uh, the soul's elations and, and the soul's dread. 
Nebuchadnezzar here gives praise to the God of heaven. Now, my question is, is he just simply giving lip service? I mean, is he yet not converted when he's uh, recounting this? Or is this sincere profession uh, from this man? It's, it's not easy to tell. Now, either he is giving lip service, or he is giving an account of his conversion after the fact. I don't know if you recall the one of my favorite movies, Sandlot, where the narrator is, as an adult, narrating his childhood uh, experiences on the Sandlot, playing baseball and whatnot. And that could be happening here as well. I mean, Hollywood did not invent that kind of storytelling. So, the king spoke as one intellectually convinced that God is absolutely sovereign and om, uh, omniscient. That is, that he knows everything. And he has absolute control over everything because he's the creator. But some doubt here that, that he was converted. Now what's peculiar about this particular chapter is that this is the only chapter in scripture where the composition of a text is under the authority of, the, of a pagan. Here again, what do we see? God's sovereignty. So anyway, let, let me hit up on some of the high points of the verses 1 through 3. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar addresses the Lord as the Most High God. That name in Hebrew, the Most High God, is El Elyon, which means God, El, the Creator, Elyon, meaning High or the Highest God. Um, speaking, this speaks of God as being the supreme God over all gods, including Nebuchadnezzar's gods. Now understand, there are no gods. They are demons. Scripture teaches that. I'm not going there right now. But in El Elyon, in Scripture, reveals that, first of all, he fixes the nation's boundaries... That's Deuteronomy 32.8 when he says, When the Most High gave the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of man, he set the boundaries of the peoples according to the number of the sons of Israel. He also effects change in the creation. That's Psalm 18.13. This name also reveals God's loving kindness. Psalm 21.7 says, For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the loving, covenant, uh, and through the loving kindness of the Most High, he will not be shaken. Also demonstrates his protection. Psalm 91, one of my favorite psalms in all of scripture, says, For you have made the Lord my refuge, even the most high your dwelling place. No evil will befall you, nor will any plague come near your tent. The most high God acts in history. And Nebuchadnezzar, part of his praise to God, he's saying, not only are you the Most High God, but your signs are great. Your wonders are mighty. When we're talking about signs here, a sign in Hebrew here is always wrought by God. These are what's called an attesting miracle. And according to one theologian, these natural phenomena, because of their timing or magnitude, decisively evidence God's intervention in judgment or redemption. When Nebuchadnezzar says, mighty are his wonders, that word wonder has to do with what is wrought by God as well. It's a supernatural manifestation of God's divine intervention which leaves a person dumbfounded and awestruck. 
If you ever read accounts in the Bible where people are awestruck or dumbfounded, a lot of times in the presence of a manifestation of just God in His glory, like Isaiah 6, the, the person is undone. There is uh, a sense of terror that grips the soul. And rightly so. Doesn't this happen when we behold something in nature? For example, when I see just on TV, on a video, these guys riding huge, enormous waves. I am, I am dumbfounded that they can even do it. And why? Because I've experienced way smaller waves and their power. And so there's, there's something there about God's acts, uh, God's signs and His wonders that are to leave us utterly baffled. And yet it is those very signs that skeptics deny that even took place. Romans 1, suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. Nevertheless, and he says God's kingdom. He says, His kingdom is everlasting. It is that which has no end of time or of reign. God alone forever is king over everything, world without end. In other words, what he is saying here is that God is the only absolute monarch. Nebuchadnezzar's exclamation is worthy of note because it comes from a pagan king who was enamored with his own power, prestige, and domain. This, isn't, this was no ordinary man in history. He is encountering the living God and what does he do? There's a 180 degree turn that takes place. I think too often we can't appreciate the gravity of this because we are so inundated with image that we neglect word. Understand that word, God's word, is what's responsible for the creation. It's sustaining, God's word sustains the creation and God's word will forever sustain everything that has been created. His word. What we need more today, I'm convinced of, is not just good arguments for the faith in our pluralistic culture. And I'm all for them. You know I am. But if people are to have any hope of redemption, they need a genuine encounter with the living God. A person, not a force. This encounter may not be like Nebuchadnezzar's was, but it nevertheless has to be genuine. After it's all said and done, after I've argued my heart out, after I've lived and loved as best as I know how to the glory of God, people still got to encounter God. And unless God moves, they won't. And we need to pray that God will move and people will encounter God. So Nebuchadnezzar begins with praising God Most High. And now he his dream and we're going to see its interpretation. It's verses 4 through 27. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream and it made me fearful and these fantasies as I lay on my bed and the visions in my mind kept alarming me. 
So I gave orders to bring into my presence all the wise men of Babylon that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the conjurers, the Chaldeans, and the diviners came in and I related the dream to them, but they could not make its interpretation known to me. But finally Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I related the dream to him, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, since I know that a spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery baffles you, tell me the visions of my dream, which I have seen, along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay on my bed. I was looking, and behold, there was a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew large and became strong, and its height reached to the sky, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the sky dwelt in its branches, and all living creatures fed themselves from it. I was looking into visions in my mind as I lay on my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted out and spoke as follows, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its foliage and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches. Yet, leave the stump with its root in the ground, but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field, and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him share with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whom he wishes, and sets over it the lowliest of men. This is the dream which I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, tell me its interpretation, and as much as none of the wise men of my kingdom is able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for a spirit of the Holy God's is in you. Recall chapter 2, when the king asks a crazy uh, request, tell me what my dream was or I'll kill you, was essentially the message. And none of the magicians could answer, but Daniel did through God's help. Here again, Nebuchadnezzar knows Daniel. Now, one of the things I want to consider here is Nebuchadnezzar's opulence. Consider this, when he says, I was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. This speaks of the king's utter wealth, power, and not only that, but his accompanying aesthetic, uh, the accompanying aesthetic beauty that comes with wealth and power, be it people, places, or things. And this absolutely swelled him up with pride. This is understandable. People that look good and got a lot of stuff and status and fame, their heads tend to swell. And it's understandable. But you know what? Stuff ain't enough. His dream gripped him with fear and alarm. Now when fear comes, what are we reminded of? We're reminded that we are fragile, that our state is temporary, and that regardless of the possessions we have, this is all temporary. 
It's just a vapor, as James says, of our lives. But when he talks about that he was alarmed, this word in Hebrew means to be dismayed. Which comes from a word which means to experience emotional fear when confronted with something unexpected, threatening, or disastrous. You couple that with the word fear, and in Hebrew it means there's a fear of a future event, but it also has to do with uh, shrinking back or to crawl away. That's how afraid, that's how alarmed this king became. So this, this dream essentially made this king enormously uneasy to, to, to the point where he wanted to crawl under a rock and hide. I want you to feel this. Don't want you to tune me out. He is shaking. So what's Daniel's demeanor? I love it. Daniel's demeanor in response to the king is one of concern, one of deep affection, of love toward this pagan king. Verse 19 says, Then Daniel, whose name is Belteshazzar, was appalled for a while as his thoughts alarmed him. The king responded and said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its interpretation alarm you. Belteshazzar replied, My Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. Now, first of all, Daniel was alarmed. He too had emotional fear. He wasn't expecting this. He was feeling the fear, the, 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 the coming disaster that was going to come upon the king. And his love for him created a concern for him. Even though this was a pagan king, he loved him. He didn't despise him. Hello, Christian. Are you despising pagans that are ruling in this land? Daniel was alarmed, but also Daniel, his, as I said, Daniel loves Nebuchadnezzar. When he says, if only the dream applied to those who hate, uh, who hate those who hate you, and its interpretation. I mean, this is a disposition of somebody who really, really cares. You know, I, I, too often I fear Christians so hate what rulers stand for. I know a lot of people can't stand Obama and they're Christian. It's like, okay, but you've got to be really careful with your attitude that it doesn't become something that's ungodly and creates ba- needless barriers. I mean, we all have different points of view. I got it. But if you're coming from the Christian worldview, you've got to understand there is a disposition that you and I need to have when we're approaching those that we are in disagreement with and with those who, who, who are enemies of God, essentially. So too often what I think we do is we forget to see people as people created in God's image. All we see is that they are rebellious. They are this or they are that. And perhaps it's that very disposition that is an obstacle that keeps many of these quote-unquote pagans from coming to faith. Ever think of that? To love does not mean we forfeit the truth. No, we don't forfeit the truth. 
we die for it. But with our lives, we demonstrate its reality. Not in only what we say, but in how we live. Not in only how we live, but in how we speak. So Daniel here shows his deep concern for the king and his kingdom. Now, we got an election coming up in 2016. And as believers, I encourage you to get informed. Vote for the candidate that best mirrors the Christian worldview. But please don't be nasty or lewd with those that disagree with you because how you respond to them may have a deep impact on whether or not they come to Christ. I want you to think about that. Okay? So, Daniel's demeanor is one of concern and love and care for this pagan king. And now Daniel's explanation is to the point and it's troublesome. It's very troublesome. He foresees the future and he faithfully reports his interpretation even though it could cost him his life. Do you understand that? When a monarch hears news and the bearer of that news brings it, if that monarch does not like it, many times the monarch has that bearer of that news executed. I know we can't really appreciate it because we don't live under supposedly a a, a monarch. Okay? Nevertheless... Verse 20, let's start with verse 20, says, um, The tree that she saw, which became large and grew strong, whose height reached to the sky and was visible to all the earth, and whose foliage was beautiful and its fruit abundant, and in which was food for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and in branches the sky lodged, it is you, O king. For you have become great and grown strong, and your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, and your dominion to the end of the earth. Now this tree is prosperous in every single way. It reflects Babylonian knowledge, wisdom, and might. And the king, in fact, was the tree. The king, in fact, was an amazing man. I want you to, I want you to appreciate it. Nebuchadnezzar was an amazing ruler. How amazing was he? In charge of a huge empire whose capital city was a wonder of the ancient world, opines scholar John Lennox. A city originally engineered to reflect human achievement, symbolized in its famous uh, ziggurat, whose top pierced the heavens. Daniel makes sure that Nebuchadnezzar sees the connection. It is now the emperor whose greatness has grown and reaches to heaven. So this metaphor, this word picture... Describes this king, his achievements, his knowledge, his power. His achievements can't be overstated. God here is saying that Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom was glorious, beautiful, and in that sense, in that sense, God approved of it. Why? Because it reflects the image of God through his creatures. That's why. The reason activity, art, studying, etc. 
has any meaning at all is because God is there is because it reflects who he is and little residues of it trickle out from image bearers human beings his aesthetic imagination his aesthetic imagination can be seen not only in the architectural marvels but also in the famous hanging gardens of Babylon which must have been a spectacular sight to see if any of you enjoy beauty which I think everyone in here does and if any of you enjoy architecture and landscaping there is somebody planting a couple of flowers here and then there is an artist on, on the other side who you see their creativity as they landscape around a home in the backyard well here we're talking about the city of Babylon an empire his contribution his achievements his aesthetic imagination but also his contribution to the well-being of thousands of people can and I think should also be appreciated because through Babylon's prosperity this great tree provided sustenance for all under his rule this tree was absolutely amazing and so was this king but this king was also fragile it's amazing the dichotomies this king was fragile and now here we see secondly the angelic declaration verse 23 and that the king saw an angelic watcher a holy one descending from heaven and saying chop down the tree and destroy it yet leave the stump with its roots in the ground but with a band of iron and bronze around it in the new grass of the field and let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him share with the beasts of the field until seven periods of time pass over him now an angelic watcher a, a holy one this term is found only here in all of scripture I mean this book is so colorful it just amazes me an angelic watcher is an angel and whether uh, this uh, alludes to a particular class of angelic being if there's any such thing like that um, what these do is they execute God's judgmental decrees on mankind. So the judgmental decree here is chop down the tree. Which meant what? That Yahweh's discipline was going to come upon the king and he would for seven years live like an animal. He would live like an animal. Why? Why? Because the king's glory went to his head. 
I mean, think about it. To be the world's superpower, Babylon. And to be its leader, Nebuchadnezzar. With anything you desire, at your disposal, and it's tough not to get swelled up with pride. I mean, come on. We struggle with pride in our own lives and we, we have hardly anything that this guy had. have the angelic declaration. Now you've got the decree of the Most High. Verse 24. This is the interpretation, O King. And this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever He wishes. And in that it was commanded to leave the stump with the roots of the tree, your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules. So, first of all, the decree of the Most High. The decree of the Most High is a command that will come to pass because He who governs creation and everything in it has spoken. It's done. You and I don't have that power. Rulers have that power in some measure, definitely. But God's is absolute. Okay? Now, Nebuchadnezzar is going to live as an animal. He will not only lose his power to rule, he will also lose his power to reason. He is going to go insane. He will be reduced to a beast's mentality, however that works, and eat the food of cattle. Now note, this will be for seven years, which is, in the Bible, the, 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 the number seven is the number of completion. It's the number of, com, uh, of, of perfection. So what this means, that seven years, his humiliation will be a complete humiliation. It'll be a perfect humiliation in the eyes of God. Now, until when? Until you recognize something. This word, to recognize, in Hebrew, means to know. Or to have the capacity to know. And that word is derived from another Hebrew word, yada, which means to know God in a redemptive way. That He is your God and you are His people. So the words he usage here is very instructive. First, it's used for either personal or public confession of sin. That's all direct. Uh, that's always directed toward God, as David did. Uh, David's confession in Psalm 32:5. It's also employed to express public proclamation of God's attributes and His works. It's often translated thanks. Those who are Yahweh's can't help but thank Him for who He is and what He's done. And what does Romans 1 say? What does Romans 1 say? 
it says that those who don't acknowledge God also don't give Him thanks. Those who are under God's wrath are not those that acknowledge God and give Him thanks. And so the point here is this. Nebuchadnezzar's sanity will return to him only after he comes to know God as the absolute sovereign and Savior. That's what I think this passage is teaching here. That God will share His glory with no man in this sense. When people try to be... When you and I want to be made much of, eventually it ends up destroying us. Because we're not designed to receive the glory that's reserved for God alone. We got an entire culture engrossed in not getting smarter, thinking better, honoring God, loving one another. No, we have a culture that's engrossed with fame. I want to be famous. Um, that's insane. Because what you are wanting is essentially going to drive you mad. It's cost many people their lives. The pressure of everybody wanting a piece of them, they crumble and they either kill themselves or just become recluses. Daniel goes from explaining the meaning of the dream to pleading for the king to repent from his evil deeds. And I got to tell you, He loves this monarch, but he does not forfeit the truth. In fact, because he loves this monarch, he tells him the truth. Daniel's plea, verse 27, says this, Therefore, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness, and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor, in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. So when, when Daniel is saying, break, break away now from your sins, is Daniel's way of saying to the king, repent! He is politely commanding, listen, he is politely commanding the king to repent. He's putting himself at great peril by doing so. Could have easily been executed, but you know what? That's what love does. That's what love does. To love may ultimately cost us our lives. But we can't, be a, we can't shrink back from harm's way because we fear people or what may take place in our lives. When it comes to living in the truth of who God is and being His child, 
and being accepted by the world. What are you going to do, believer? What are you going to do, friend? What are you going to do, Christian? Daniel did what Jesus would do. He's telling them, break away now from your sins. How? Doing righteousness. Showing mercy to the poor. And what he's pointing to here is that while your kingdom is glorious and God has approved of your, your, your skill to govern, build, and rule, God has rejected your oppression and greed. Especially over the weaker and destitute that can't defend themselves. Do you see that? How God can approve on the one hand this king and utterly reject him on the other hand? Do you see that? Do you realize it's not a contradiction? Do do you want me to go over that? A contradiction is A cannot be non-A at the same time and in the same sense. So on the one hand, uh, in one sense, God is approving of the king. In another sense, he is totally disapproving. And because of the se- because the senses are different, there's no contradiction. I'll ask you a question. Do you try to do that in when you're dealing with situations, human beings? You try to look at the good and the bad. Don't you do that? We tried to do that, right? Try to give sometimes, hopefully, uh, people the benefit of the doubt, even though the evidence looks like completely and totally contrary to any benefit. You're doing you're doing that. See, you're imaging God when you're doing that. It's a good thing. Anyway, Daniel is saying, stop your oppressive ways. But, as is often the case, the word of the Lord sounds forth. It is not heeded, and we continue, and Nebuchadnezzar continued to walk in darkness. Because that's what happened. Because Nebuchadnezzar, um, his dream now uh, became his nightmare. Verses 28-33. All this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. Twelve months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. The king, re- the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you and you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beast of the field you will be given grass to eat like cattle and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize there's that word again that the most high is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled And he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. What do we got here? We got three things I want to point out. First of all, Nebuchadnezzar's damning confession. You know what it is? He is attributing to himself the achievements really owed to God's grace. 
doesn't mean that he didn't put forth the effort or whatever, but ultimately it's it's because of God's grace. You got any talents? It's because of God's grace. Achievements? God's grace. Hopes and aspirations to attain? If you get them and they're good, it's God's grace. So, what are some of his achievements that he is like gloating over? I mean, and I, and I empathize with him because, you know, <laughs> if it weren't for Christ, I would be like a horrible human being. And so would you. Or maybe you might be better without Christ than with Christ. I don't know. I know I definitely uh, am in the first category. Horrible, 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 horrible. What were some of his achievements? Well, there were excavations that have uh, in the in the 1900s that revealed that Nebuchadnezzar was in charge of, for example, the beautification of the capital, um, the celebrated Ishtar gates. He was responsible for uh, at least 20 temples being refurbished or rebuilt in Babylon and uh, Borsippa. Um, he uh, was in charge of constructing a large system of fortifications around the city of Babylon. Uh, he also was in charge of having shipping docks that were immense. So these were a, a lot of achievements. But he did not acknowledge God. And so what happened is the king's rule is stripped from him. Ingratitude and not giving honor to whom honor is due resulted in Nebuchadnezzar's rule being stripped for a specified time. And I really want you to understand this. The decree was fulfilled. That's a big idea in Bible. When God says he's going to do something, it's done. Even before it manifests, it's done. You know anybody in your life? Parent, co-worker, friend. Whose word? Man, when they say, I'll be there, you know they'll be there. I mean, you don't even, you don't even second guess it. Right? That's imaging God. That's an amazing quality. And one we all should strive to improve in. Jesus said, let your yes be yes and your no, no. Why? Because God says yes, yes and no, no. That's why. Because we are to emulate our Father in Heaven. Those of us that are believers. The decree is fulfilled. And so when God says He'll execute judgment, we must never think because it's nowhere in sight that it's not on the way. Because it is. And in fact, Peter talks about it. I think it's in Second Peter uh, about the, the, the coming day of the Lord uh, when um, you know many people are saying, oh, where's the signs of His appearing? Come on. He's not coming back. And you say, no, no, he, He's coming back. And, and while there is yet time, 
You need to get right with Him. God's not kidding, friends. When He says, do this or do that, we don't, and we don't heed His warnings, we don't heed His commands, the consequences might be our nightmare. Or the consequences might utterly damn us. So Nebuchadnezzar's dream became his nightmare. But you know what? It didn't end there, which is awesome. There's hope. There's hope. Verses 34 to 37, we see Nebuchadnezzar, as he started in verses 1 through 3, he starts praising God Most High, and he concludes the story with praising God Most High. Verse 34, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty. And surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of Heaven. All His works are true and His ways just. And He is able to humble those who walk in pride. When he says, my reason returned to me, he says it twice here. The word in Hebrew has to do with knowing. When it comes to reason, it has to do with knowing or to have the power of knowing. This is where sanity is intact. Now, far from popular naturalistic notions, to trust in God, to trust in the God of heaven and scripture requires one to use their reason, not to forfeit it. Did you understand? Do you hear that? I'm going to say it again. Contra, atheistic, worldview. That to trust in the God of heaven and scripture requires one not to use their reason. No. If you're going to worship God, Christian, you don't empty your mind and try to get into this Eastern mystical nothingness that is completely and totally alien to the God of Scripture who created us in His image. And one of those things that we image is the ability to reason. The ability to think, to understand, to know. To scrutinize. So to trust in the God of heaven, to trust in the God of Scripture, requires one to use their reason, not to forfeit their reason. Now many atheists actually hold that to believe in such a God is not healthy, but a sign of being delusional. 
We can't both be right. They may be right. They may be wrong. We may be right. We may be wrong. But we both can't be right. I'm going to go with the God of the Hebrews. I'm going to go with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I'm going to go with the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. And of the apostles. You choose who you will listen to. So his, re- his reason returned to him. And, w- and what, was the, what was the result of his right thinking? What, it, what was it? I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him. Oh gosh, why are you so excited? I'm going to tell you why I'm so excited. Because we get too dull, too fast, too easily. Too dull, too fast, too easily. We give ourselves breaks left and right and refuse to think and contemplate after God's thoughts. You know how we do that? We neglect the Word of God. We don't read. We don't think about it. We neglect the book of nature. We don't contemplate the grandeur and spectacularness, if I can say that, of what God has done. There's so much to learn of God by just observing the beauty and wonder in nature. Oh man, he's speaking right. He's saying, baby. Nebuchadnezzar knows God right now, I think. In a salvific way. I believe he's been converted. I do. I really do. Remember, he had to come to recognize God. He had to come to know Him. You can't be saved, folks. You can't be saved without knowing God. That is a, it is a requisite. Knowledge is a requisite for biblical salvation. Jesus in John 17.3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And that term, know, in the language of the New Testament, it means there's a, a, a place in time where you begin to know, and you continue to grow in that knowledge. It's the perfect tense. Joe. He blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him. And I love what he says. He, he does according to His will. God does according to His will. When God purposes to do something, neither the creature nor the creation can stop Him. Because He's ultimate. That does not in any way diminish the significance of our choices. It just means they're not ultimate. It doesn't mean they're not real. It doesn't mean that they don't have real consequences because they do. It just means they're not ultimate. In Genesis, what happened? They wanted their autonomy. 
because Adam and Eve wanted their autonomy. They disobeyed God. To disobey God is, I want my autonomy. Leave me alone. Their understanding was darkened. And through them, we got, we, we got the goods too. But hallelujah, through Christ, He starts reversing the effects of the fall. And so, when God does according to His will, He's really pointing out, He's sovereign and you're not. Now you've got to understand, who's saying this? Who's saying this? One of the most powerful men in all of known history. That's who's saying it. This is worthy of note. I think rulers in all the earth could learn a lot from this once pagan ruler who was converted. And he says, My majesty and splendor were restored to me. I mean, you talk about the mercy and grace of God. God kept his word to him. God kept his word to him. And his later days as king were better than his former days. He flourished even more. Now, he didn't rule for seven years. Boy, imagine not having a ruler for seven years a kingdom can be destroyed. But not Babylon. Why? Because God was watching over Babylon. He preserved it for His purposes. And then when He says all His works are true and His ways just, He's saying that God can't be indicted by you and me for why He does what He chooses to do especially when we don't understand it and we think God is just this horrible being. He is the God of truth and justice. We suppress the truth. You and I are guilty for injustices. God is holy. He's not the problem. Micah 6 say, what does it say? He has told you, O oh man, what the Lord requires of you, right? What is it? Huh? To do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. Yeah. If God wants to humble the monarch, as he did to Nebuchadnezzar, know that it is right and it is good. And Nebuchadnezzar got it. He got it. So where does this bring us? The perils of pride, the, the danger of pride and achievement, it can't be overstated. This pride began in the Garden of Eden. It alienated our first parents from God, themselves, each other, and the creation, and ushered in death. Christ Jesus remedied this by conquering death through His death and resurrection in Jerusalem over 2,000 years ago. He's coming back. He's coming back to judge the living and the dead. He is the King of glory without beginning or end, upholding all things by the word of His power. And He alone to reject his offer of salvation 
His rule over your life is madness. Indeed. We just don't realize it. But to embrace Him is to have our darkened reason come into the light. Now through Nebuchadnezzar's frightful dream in chapter 2, the rescue of the three friends from the fiery furnace in chapter 3, and finally undergoing his rule being stripped and living sub-animalistically, God reached him, restoring back to him his rule and reason, finally understanding this, that the Most High God ultimately rules alone, even if he installs rulers to rule. Sooner or later, all the rulers of this earth will bow down to him, either as his friend or his enemy. Now, I've said this once or twice, I'm going to say it again. Elections are coming up. Get informed. And I want to encourage Christians to vote for the candidate, listen, that best mirrors the Christian worldview. What's that? Well, you're going to have to do some, some homework. You're going to have to do some thinking. But you can do that. You've got reason. God is giving you reason, so use it. Don't waste it. Also, pray for our leaders. Understand that even candidates you wouldn't choose may be God's instruments for God's purposes. That's a tough one to swallow. But the Bible, the book of Daniel, shows us that through and through. And yet at the end of the day, the only king and dominion that's everlasting is Christ's alone. So I want to ask you this question. Will you, if you're a believer, occupy until the Master returns? Or will you waste your life? And if you're not a believer, why do you think tomorrow is assured to you? Because it's not. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear His voice today, do not harden your heart. Do not harden your heart as Israel did in the wilderness and God killed a slew of them. Father, we thank You, we praise You that Through the account of this once pagan king converted, you are calling all who will hear to understand that you and you alone are God Most High, and that you and you alone can do whatever you please. Because you are the God of creation. And all the things you do are just and true. For there is no lying in you. And so Lord, we pray that you would move in this land. That you would move through the events that are taking place in the world today that cause a tremendous amount of unrest.
in so many of our lives. May it cause those who don't know you to come and bend the knee to Jesus. And may it cause those who do know you to persevere in the faith, to to be salt and light where they're at, and let the chips fall where they may. Pray this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.